You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Abracha. This is On Principle, Challenge in Jewish Education. I'm here with, from Eretz Yisrael, from Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, Rabbi Yitzchok Adlerstein. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchok, thanks so much for joining us. You know, there's so much out there today, so much materials out there, and I was so happy that Rabbi Yitzchok Adlerstein's material is out there now in the most recent issue of Jewish Action, and that's an unabashed plug for your book review for Moshe Kapel's book, and um, what's the name of the book again? I'm sorry, I shouldn't remember, right? What's the name of the book again? Judaism Straight Up. Uh, right, yeah, it's a wonderful read, and uh, Yitzchok, Yitzchok does uh, his usual uh, great job in not only reviewing the book, but also exploring some bigger issues that you might not have uh, realized, and I, I'm sure Moshe Kapel was very happy with the review that you gave him. But when I was, after I saw my good friend there, I saw my other good friend, who, my, who I grew up with, uh, we went to high school together, Moshe Bain, uh, who is the president of the OU, and I read his president's message uh, about fragmentation in orthodoxy and how this is something to be embraced. And I want to talk about that with you. I want to somehow meld our discussion about Moish Bain's uh, articles, which I know you've read and you also have some strong feelings about, uh, I want to meld them with something that you sent me, which is when people will be listening to this, it might be past the official Pride Month. Did you realize that, by the way, June is Pride Month? I don't know if you, you realize that. Hard to get away from it. Yes, yes, Pride Month. I think in the Mazolas, by the way, I think it's Mazol to Umen. Right, which I think the uh, maybe that's a good symbol for Pride Month. I don't know exactly. Maybe not because we're up to like about fifty-seven different genders, and we don't have constellations that big. Yeah, right. So in the Tumim, I don't know exactly, you know, but it sounds like it's it's it's, it's ganz zugepasst. Why they pick June out of all the months to be Pride Month? But you sent me an article that was supposedly news, right? I love the fact that in the foreword, you know, they this is news. This isn't opinion. This isn't speculation. This is news, right? And the news, of course, was the fact that the legislation in southern states that are going to be limiting the options for LGBTQ, I might have left out a letter there. T, T. You forgot the T. I forgot the T, right? The trans. That's a capital offense in half of the states. Of the yeah. Yes, yes. So there's legislation that is impacting and hurting and damaging many of the Jewish young people in those states. And the article by Rudy Malcolm, who seems to be a young fellow who's uh, quite a prolific writer, he threw out some ideas there about how this legislation is really not in line with Torah or religion, but in many ways represents a, I guess, what, what would you say, a uh, antiquated and incorrect and not expansive enough understanding of the sources of, of Yiddishkeit. So I don't know how, how we're, we're going to try to connect these two things together. Uh, let's start with the Bain articles, and then we'll move to the other. I read both, and I, and I sent you, of course, this was a, a topic that Moish, uh seems to be heavily invested in, because he wrote three years ago about this topic as well. Uh, it sounds like he's moved a little bit in his ideas about uh, this issue, but let me just put it on the table briefly. The OU, and I would assume many what we would call centrist Orthodox organizations, look around and see that Judaism is multifaceted, and they see that there are different 
Kehillists, there's different communities, there's yeshivish, there's Swedish, there's modern Orthodox, there's Frum Machmir, there's Hasidic Machmir, there's Hamish. Uh, and, and these things are being perpetuated, as Meishbein points out, by so much, especially uh, as, as Shaduchim become much more sophisticated, and people start building their own shuls and their own little communities, and they have a way of defining themselves. And what Meishbein is trying to do is, in a way, stave off the criticism of this branching, of this breaking, of this compartmentalizing, and actually looking at as a indicator of growth and strength. And he connects these different branches, so to speak, these different ways, these different colors in the quilt of, and, and even in hashkafa and in halachic observance to something that's been part of Klau Yisroh from time immemorial. Uh, and he takes it back to the Shifte Ka, maybe not the Bnei Yaakov themselves, but as they uh, came into Eretz Yisroh, and developed within ancient Eretz Yisrael, each shevet having its own mahalach and its own approach, he feels that what we're seeing today should not be something that we should mourn or see as an indicator of terrible goals, but actually proud scars of survival. And more than that, the fact that there's movements between one group and another uh, is actually a very positive thing. At the same time, what Moshbein talks about is the uh, importance of keeping, especially young people, within that family construct that the parents have chosen to be part of, and to raise the child with those values and the proud values of whatever that group is about. Hopefully, the child will stay within the fold, but even if he doesn't, with parents that understand all the options that are open, the child can make a choice which can be uh, one of strength and one where he's not condemned. And in a way, this is really the tachlis of Klau Yisrael, not to be uniform, but to have unity and recognizing that there are differences which actually make us stronger. I, I, I think Moish would probably say I didn't do justice to it, but considering I don't have three hours for this podcast, I would say that that's probably a, a decent, concise synopsis of what he says, right? It's welcome. Yeah. We don't always agree on, on how we read things. I think you saw more of a conflict between the article three years ago and the, uh, and, and the new article that came out. I'm also a good friend of my fans, so neither of us are going to pile on him. Yeah, we should actually ask him to join us. I think, you know, if you could reach out to him. I, I'm sure, I feel funny, in fact. I'd love for him to come and talk about it because this is a favorite topic of mine. I've made a career almost of telling people that the reason why the Talmud of Rabbi Akiva died, although we mourn their death, was based on the Sochachover's interpretation of Shalinogu Kovetzebizeh, was that they wanted this blending of uniformity. And Kovet means recognizing what the other person has that you don't have. Otherwise, it's not Kovet. I mean, I'm a Chabad Yuyit, Rav for the multitude of your gifts and things that I wish I could do like you. But I, I, I think... It's only when I understand what you bring to the table, your strengths and, and, and your qualities, which are lesion, and recognize that I don't have them and recognize how I can learn from them and how we, we, we can be a, a good podcast team or a good chadrusershav. And I'll know where to find the Makairas and you'll know how to stitch them together in a way that they're palatable and, and you can sell them as you did recently in the, in the Jewish press. So that, that's a good chadrusershav. That's an example of kavod. 
I have to interject and say that I wouldn't be on this podcast today if it weren't for the fact that I look up to you and not only talk to you, but you're my answer man on so many issues. Okay. But, but you have the capacity, again, you know, this is not a mutual rubbing our, each other's backs moment, but I'm just using ourselves as an understanding. I know that you have a talent of being able to distill an idea and give it over in a way that it's palatable to more people than I can. And you know that I'm a person who's, you know, who's sort of like, you know, involved in these old tomes and enjoys, you know, sifting through the sands of time and discovering things. So that's a good match. That's a sense of cover that we have for each other. And that's what I believe the Talmud Rabbi Kiva lacked. The result, of course, was this overwhelming sense of, of what they thought was unity, but was really uniformity, where we all love each other. We're all singing Kumbaya and we're all together. And I think, and this is really what I've said as a very radical thing, and I've never told this to you before, that it was a bracha that they died. Because had those 24,000 been the koveya of what Taira was, then we would not have had the personalities of Rameir and Rabiasi and Rav Yehuda. What we would have had was a very vanilla Yiddishkeit and a, a vanilla Taira. Nah. Before that would have happened, Rabbi Avram, somebody would have gotten up in the base matters and said, who says that the Sokotrov is right? <laughs> right back to not imposing uniformity on Kalitra. But that's my vart. So I actually am happy. I applaud Moish Bain for being Mechavin, so to speak, to the same idea that we don't want Achdus to just be a phrase that strips people of their ability to be different and develop within the kayachas that they have. Okay, let's take it a little deeper. Meishbein didn't have to go to the Shvatim after coming into Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I, I believe that he's at least as much of a Hershian as I am. And Roshan Paul Hirsch makes it an eker in the, in the Chumash to point out that uniformity is a hobgoblin of progress for Klal Yisrael. The reason why there is so much space devoted in the Chumash that we're currently reading, in the Chumash Midbar, to Ish al-Diglo and to the exact positioning of different machanos, each one with a different flavor and each one with three different varieties within and the kochos that they brought to the table, because Klal Yisrael is supposed to look far more like an orchestra of different choirs than it is a bunch of people playing the same instrument. That's the way it is supposed to be. That is the idea of the shift they cut to begin with. And that is the way the Rebbe Shalom wants us to continue in the future. That's what's behind what the, uh, the Ari HaKadosh talked about, the 12 different Sha'arim in Shemayim. That's still the way it has to be. Now, get that down to the present. We're all talking all uh, the time about achtos and about respecting each other. And Bar Hashem, there are a lot of people who are into that, but there are people who are. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of hostility and trading of blows, sometimes physical. As I see, we're probably not going to talk about that tonight, uh, maybe for good reason, because I don't have enough. You don't have enough wood to uh, board up your windows. For exactly. Example. Right. So... There have been different approaches. Uh, a good that does not get enough credit or enough understanding for what their, their subtitle is, which is coalition. People don't understand what an enormous task it was from the beginning, and more so today, 
of taking some very, very different and outspoken factions in Klal Yisrael and trying to unite them on anything. Oh, look, on the Agud, I'll agree with you. The, the, the ness of, of Ger Chsidim and Yek is finding common ground. Right. And that's an example. We talk about COVID. Obviously, the Hislavos, the numbers, the sense of Avoida, the sense of fealty to Altam Messiah, not just Yekisha Zachen. That's Ger had in spades. What Rav Yankel Roshenheim and others had was organization, was the understanding of filing on time, was the understanding of looking in a certain, uh, a certain good European manner and being able to create the convention and, and make it so and have a secretary and have actually a series of events and activities that could actually be beneficial as opposed to we're having a tish. Right. And and let's talk about Chesidus. So they were able to use the management and intellectual skills of the Germans and the Hislavos and Messiris Nefesh of the Chesidim to create something fantastic. It's more than just the blending of Kokos. I mean, to this day, there is an unspoken rule in Aguda about how many people have to come from the Litvish camp on the Moetzes and how many people have to come from the Chesidish and one in between. And it is always determined which issues Aguda can get involved with and which ones they can't. They had to restrict themselves. People find this very frustrating about Aguda. I think it's one of their biggest milas that they're able to button their lip when they have to in order to preserve the community umbrella. Now, the OU, paradoxically, is in the same position today. Modern orthodoxy which was modern orthodoxy. And they, yeah, there were different flavors and different shuls. And, but now it itself has become different camps from within. And something that tried to be part of modern orthodoxy, Baruch Hashem, lots of people have managed to so marginalize that I believe by now most people in the modern orthodox world realize that open orthodoxy is not orthodoxy at all. But within modern orthodoxy, you have competing visions of where the future will be. And that means competing visions for what the OU should be doing now. Now, Mesh Bain has been a great figure in holding the different groups together. I believe both of the articles that he wrote were trying to put a positive spin on things that are happening, changing realities in the community and saying, you know what? They're there, they're not so terrible. There's some advantages as well. The key one was, I think this is an enormous takeaway for people who are listening who have teenage kids, that there is going to be rebellion. Face it, it's going to happen. Your teenagers are going to rebel. Halavai, they should rebel against you by deciding to put on a gartel when you didn't, or maybe to take off the gartel and be very chashev. Ben Torah, clean shaven, who completely committed to halacha. That's far better than what other families. Right. The problem I have with it, though, is that I believe it's a Pelagia. And again, it'd be great to have Moish here, but I would say that, yeah, we're happy that there, and he mentions that there's halachic differences. Halachic difference meaning that what one Hevra, the modern Orthodox, would say is mutter, whether it's Chol Stam or whatever sort of programs or whatever sort of dress length or whatever we're going to allow the height of the mechitza to be, that that is also part, like the shift they call. 
I believe that that is apologia. I believe Moish himself would say that if the truth is, this is a kula in aloha that should be suspended with, that there are certain things within the coalition that the OU represents that many people would say, this is wrong, that this is something we need to shake them out of it. We don't want to condemn them. We don't want them to go into with Avi Weiss and be part of the hetero-orthodox, whatever they call the open orthodoxy. But I think that it isn't just, this is Ruvain and this is Shimon. I think that there are many who believe, not just, oh, different Paiskim, that this is Osir. And I think there are things that go on, whether it's in the type of education that happens in the schools, whether it's the mixing of the sexes at a certain age, that people from the yeshiva belt rightfully believe that this is really wrong. Unfortunately, the community, we can't shake them out of it. We don't want to lose them. We want to show that we have a yad pshut to them. They do have rabbanim and thinkers, and they are learning Torah, but there are things about their style of life and the way they conduct themselves that are wrong. Let me put it even better. Forget about Bain's article. I happen to daven in two different types of shuls right now. I know you, we've talked about where you're davening, and I know you're also in the sense a nomad. You're looking for your shul. Maybe you found it. But I daven in two different shuls now. One is a very balabatish shul that looks at the clock and has things down. 8.12, you better hit Baruch by 8.12, right? If you don't, now you've got to get Korbanus over by 8.05. 8.12, you have seven minutes for Pesuka de Zimra. That's 8.12. Shemona Esrei, Chas V'Shalom, it should be anything later than 819, because you got to get there. And unless the rabbi is there, Nebuch, if the rabbi is there, they have to wait and he will give them the sign. It's four minutes, Shemona Esrei. The Chazor Sashat, okay, you have to say the Ivra, right? But then, davening, even in the day of Kriya Satira, 848 is the latest that davening can end. And if a Baltvilla goes up there, because he has a yard site or some other reason, and cannot live up according to that standard, he's going to get lambasted and be, be shouldered by, by the Balabatim in that shul. Okay? That's one shul I daven in. The other shul I daven in is Achsida Sheminyan. Achsida right? Sheminyan, okay, it doesn't necessarily start exactly on time until they come, but Psuka de Zimra, you can hear the Shiraz of the Shbachis to the Vaynershayu. After Baruchu, you feel like you're Mamish with the Malochim. You understand what that is. Right? Kriyashma, it's taka, a whole number of people that are saying Kriyashma with Islavus. And even though I have to say, they have a shtickle machla. Their Chazar Sashat is like Mario Andretti sometimes at the Indianapolis Speedway. But however, the Shtilashmanesre is a Shtilashmanesre. So, at the Balabatish Shul, which is one of the colors of the rainbow, Kivalevich would say, they're not really davening. Kivalevich would say, yeah, okay, it's fine. Is there kavana? Are they missing it? Yes, right? And I think it's, it's not wrong to say that they're not there yet. Instead of saying, this is all part of the rainbow of Klal Yisrael, I think it's okay to say that there's people, B'nai Aliyah, and we're not there yet. And instead of binding us all together in this Aguda and saying, you know, I'm Ruven, you're Shimon. The truth is, I'm hoping to be a, a somebody. But Nebuch, I'm still a, a Balabas in this Balabatish place where this is the toned down, stripped down, like easygoing Yiddishkeit that I'm living with. But that is actually a halachic negative. 
And to say that it's, oh, it represents a certain halachic approach. That's not a halachic approach. That's as, to me, Yitzchok Yobi Moichel, that's as bad as the modern Orthodox Shita. Okay, we're going to have the night at the movies at the shul and play bingo. Because if, if davening means punching a clock, then they are missing the aside of Shulchan Aruch, of what it means, Kavana, and everything else. Okay, go ahead. I would take strong issue with using the word wrong. I share the same frustration, and I daven the same two shuls, <laughs> 9,000 miles away. I think that while there is much merit in what you're saying, and people have to be able to be enthusiastic and proud and to be able to articulate to their children and tell me them, the milus of things that they appreciate and that are part of our Mesorah, taking a condescending view of those who are, as you said correctly, not quite there yet, is dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous for a number of reasons. It's dangerous because it leads to period in Klal Yisrael. It's dangerous because, even more dangerous, because it leads to people be able, being able to look at their milus Milus of their selves and the chesronus of others, while it really should be the other way around. And that is uh, toxic to a person's own growth. In this, I, I think I'm as much of a litvak as I am. I'm going to have to be with the Hasidisha who say that you have to be able at least to put some of that aside frequently, if not most of the time, and look at what is shared in common. And to look at another yid and say, there was a holy Jew. Of course. That's Avas Yisrael. I don't want to down with them. It's like Avas Yisrael is an afterthought. Really? These are guys who got it wrong. And I'm going to stand up on the rooftops and declare that what they're doing is wrong. We don't have to shout it from the rooftops so much. We got plenty. You name the group that doesn't have plenty that the other camp can't point to them and say, yeah, but look at what you guys are doing. Okay, you always can say Tulkura Bain Ainecha, but there's a big difference between I, I would give Bain his thing. You have the Frum Litva Shigishiva belt, you know, that Bakoshi they can give a smile and nod and say hello. You have the Khsidisha belt that at least knows how to shmechel and be able to reach over and have the Ava of the Balshemtav, but they come late and they don't care about Zmanitville. Okay. So each one in a certain sense, they farlozachan whatever heterim from that they have from other paiskim. Okay, good. There I can see what we're talking about. But when you're talking about the people that Bain doesn't live with, the people that Bain is talking to, the meat and potatoes of the OU congregations, I think that you are letting them off the hook easy by granting them membership within this, you know, this rainbow. I would rather them know, look, I'm not there yet. I have where to go. And I want to look up to these B'nai Torah. And I'd like to get there. I think we all, I think I know you well enough to say, both of us would like to say, there's certain anagas, certain sugis we'd like to learn, certain svarm we'd like to do, that we really hope we're getting there. And we look ourselves in the face, in the mirror and say, we're not there yet. We wish we could be greater. Without saying, no, this is what I am. And I'm part of this coalition and I'm part of it and I represent and I'm happy because I think what that leads to is smug self-satisfaction and we know we should be honest there is a hierarchy there's the Oiv de Hashem there's the people who live in a higher Darga the Chesidah Shechever that I learn with in Kailu it's true I can outdo them on any Taisvis on the page but they can outdo me properly in certain 
chumras and frumka and things of Avedis Hashem and maybe the way they're raising their kids that I have to just be Makana. And when I go there in Davin, I, I feel that, uh, you know what? I'm going to be better because I talk and machabed them. And, and they come to me to say, you know, we can't figure out this thesis. Can, can we learn this with you? I said, okay, let's try. I, I'm old. This is all I know how to do. So let's do it. And to me, I don't go home saying I'm, because I know that in many ways, I wish I was more makbed on Shmira Senayim than they were. I wish I was more makbed on not being affected by Inyonim, that unfortunately as a podcaster, I have to do. And I know that their Musogam of Kedusha are, are Hecher, as opposed to saying, well, I'm all right. I'm one of the Shvotim. Anyway, that's my problem. And I think if Moish himself was here, he's a great preacher for them. The question is, though, does that lead to complacency? Because let's be honest, Rav Yitzchak, when we want modern orthodoxy to basically to strip away all the power of a Narishkeit that they have, take the intellectual openness and the brilliance that they have, especially since so many of the members of modern orthodoxy are people who are coming from schools of education and, and, and a quality of mind and thinking that is very important to have. But we, shouldn't we be misspelled that they should all become the Bali Tfila and the Bali Avoida of the Litvisha and, and, and the Chesidah Shevel? Good. And therein is the, is the problem. And it's a, an issue that the OU has been facing for years. And nobody knows which way it's going to go yet. There is debate within modern Orthodox circles, within leadership of modern Orthodoxy, about what the future will bring. And because of that, where our kochos should be right now, should we concentrate on the core element of people who are completely uh, observant or committed to a traditional view of halacha, are not going to cut back on chinuch of their kids, wives go to mikvah, and see them as the vanguard for the future and put kochos into them. But that means running the risk of all those other people who you want to bring to a high madrega becoming so marginalized that there's nothing left to bring to, to bring to any one of those advanced levels. So this is something I don't think anybody wants to take a chryas for. And I think Moish Bain is doing an excellent job saying, look, in the meantime, before HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides this thing for us, our job is to try to hold as much of it together without compromising the needs of the core. Now, I, I think you're, you're seeing things in binary terms. When you look at the modern Orthodox uh, community and you say, yeah, but there's so much of this fluff that's going on out there. I don't think that's accurate about what you'll find in modern Orthodox shuls. I think within each one of them, in most places, except for the open Orthodox, and maybe even there, I'm sure there are very, very many fine people were there stuck in the wrong rules. But in most places, you're going to find a mixture of people who have very little understanding or hakara of what Avodah Hashem is, and B'nai Torah. Some of them are B'nai Torah because their grandchildren are B'nai Torah, so they've become more sympathetic. But there's, there's a blend within those modern, modern Orthodox schools, and every one of them is an attempt usually to keep disparate groups together. I could easily name you a half a dozen of places where this is the case, where a rabbi is juggling the different needs, including real yeshivish people and some people with all the chassidish of and they're there in modern Orthodox shuls. Write them off at all and say, yeah, but look at, you know, like they have a bingo night and they start showing movies in the shul. 
they're doing that, and they also have they also have a mini colo on the same on the same campus, and and some of their some of their kids are going to the uh, to the community's day school, wind up going to wonderful places afterwards, or flip when they get to Eretz Yisrael, turn into the the mainstream of the Torah community. The truth is, Meish actually touched on that. I think in his first article. When he talked about the fact that in out-of-town communities, which, and this was a topic that we had, of course, we talked about out-of-town Haredim, one of our more popular programs on, on this platform that you and I discussed. And he talked about how in those places, there wasn't the need to sort of like compartmentalize and point to the other. It was sort of like at a necessity, whether it's in the Cincinnati or in Phoenix or wherever it is, or Memphis or any place, you, you do somehow have a coalition strung together. Like I, I know, for example, even when I was growing up in Memphis, and of course you were in New York, but I remember we were the kids, most of the kids in our class that we played football with and baseball with, they weren't Shemar Shabbos, and they weren't going to go to yeshiva. And I remember them always pointing to us from the time I was in fourth grade. Oh, Kivlevich, oh, he's going to go to yeshiva. And, and then you know, we would try to invite these kids for Shabbos. Uh, they would come. We would bedavka have bar mitzvahs, Yitzchok, not on a Shabbos. Because we knew, and that was the Hanhog in Memphis, that all the Frum kids, no one had Shabbos bar mitzvahs because we had bar mitzvahs on Mondays and Thursdays to allow the non-Frum kids, we didn't want to be a hand in Michal Shabbos. And we sent continuously kids to Philly, to Scranton, to Nary Yisrael, in, in droves, those Frum kids. And most of these guys who I meet now at various reunions and things, they're very stark and it's possible that it was because they had a little bit of that out of town experience. And you know yourself and your own children that there are many in those communities that become leaders. They realize that they have to be a model for what they represent. And whereas the large northeastern communities, whether it's a Teaneck or something like that, there you have to do the OU shuffle. We're saying, oh, we've got the yeshiva millionaire, we've got this millionaire, we're all part of this. And I think it's truer what's going on out of town. Let me say it better. The kids in my class that weren't Shemer Shabbos, they knew they weren't Shemer Shabbos. And they knew that there was a etch, there was a kids in their class that they liked, they played ball with, and they knew that they were something higher. Maybe some of them aspired to get there. And, and I find in, in the future, when I met them, some of them did. But I think that's a more realistic take than admitting something that I think in your heart of hearts, you know, isn't true. To say that the modern Orthodox approach, whether it's about boys and girls learning together, the bingo nights are even worse. The musical things that are going on, let's bring in the stars of Shtisel, whatever it is that they're doing, all of that is not only Bittelsman, but it's also, uh, it's really not Kedusha Bechlal. It's the anti-Dvekas to the Rebbeinu Shalom. So again, I'm willing to clap Alchet and say, I'm not there yet. But I think that's better than saying, I'm just one of these people. Yes, we agree to disagree slightly on this. We'll get Moish maybe to come back uh, next time. Let's talk about the article you sent me today, which really threw me for a loop. Why don't you describe it and, and, and I'll respond. So on the one hand, you could see it as just another one of these articles that tries to prove the opposite of what the Torah says by making clever or not so clever arguments using biblical or Talmudic language. And the audience doesn't know the difference because they couldn't tell the difference between a Bible and a Talmud if they tried. 
So you have somebody who calls herself rabbi and uh, puts a couple of things together. And, you know, she's a rabbi. She's a scholar. So you know, this has to be right. But the sheer number of phony arguments in this article that just completely distorted and misapplied things in the Torah and in the Gemara just struck a raw nerve. It made reference to the Talmud speaks of six genders. Oh, twice in the article, Talmud speaks of six genders. Really? I don't know. I, I can't say I, uh, I have shas on my fingertips, but I have made a few siyumim of shas. I think what it means is sris, islandis. It means sris, islandis, tumtum, androgynous. And anybody who's gone through the sermon realizes that all of the intersex, uh, no, that's an official word. It's a technical term also that refers to chromosomal who don't fit into either the standard masculine or, or, or feminine description. But anybody who's been through the Gemara, even cursory reading of art school, realizes that all the discussion of the Gemara has to do with where do we place all of those things, Sris, Islandis, Tumtum, Androgynous, and this forced choice of male or female. It's all trying to decide, except maybe androgynous is a barrier of neatsma. Just to, not to bury the lead, what the article tried to say is, is that if you look at, at Chazal, you see that gender is fluid, and it's actually the opposite, is what you're saying. Because really, the mitzius, the physical mitzius of a person who is hermaphrodite, who has male and female aspects of genitalia, or someone who, because of this birth defect, we would call it, it's unclear exactly what he is or she is really underscores the fact that ultimately there is Zohar and Nikeva, right? And the question is, where do the other four fit in? It is binary. And if anything, all these sources show that you're either Zohar or Nikeva. And another one that really got me was the contention that according to the rabbis of the Talmud, Dina originally had a male soul and God helped her transition. Now, again, it's, it's based on the Midrashim that Rashi brings down, that what was forming within Leah at the time was a male child. And Hashem changed it. Basically, it was actually Tfilas Leah. Leah changed it. Leah's Rachmanus was able to be piled that Dina was not a male, and that, that would give Leah so many male children that it would encroach on, on Rachel. She couldn't even be as one of the shvachos. As one of the shvachos. Right. Because that child would have been one of the shvachim, and Rachel would only have been able to produce one as opposed to. So that's what Chazal say. And this article in the foreword was using this medrash to say, as you say, that she actually transitioned in utero. from. Right? It was a transitional choice to transition from a male to female. Right. So it got, it got me thinking about can you ever claim an exclusive uninterpretation? By the way, before you go into that, I just want to tell you there are Chaim HaKadosh actually uses this Chazal to explain why it says Batei Dina. In other words, Dina was sort of ungirl-like, you know, as beautiful as she was, obviously because, you know, you know Shechem was uh, enraptured by her, but she had a Mida, he says, sort of that boy-like Mida of wanting to discover and find out. She wasn't so demure that she had a certain sense of she was a Yatsanis, and the Yatsanis actually comes from 
the Teva of men. So there is something, again, in there that she isn't exactly your typical girl. That is true, like the Archaim HaKadosh says, but it's a lot different than to say that we could use her as any sort of template for someone who feels in themselves, like that article in the forward we're saying, those, and again, you have to Rachmanus on these children, but somehow to use this as as a justification for someone who's unsure about their sexual identity to say, okay, we're, just, we're going to do to you what the Rabbi Shalom or what the Tefillah of Leah did to Dina, and we're going to turn you into a girl, which is really, again, what the justification is, which is obviously such a, a leap. It's a perverse leap. And the fact that that article, before you get onto your horse about interpretation, the fact that the article is there as news, and nobody even can say, wait, wait, hold on. You know, this is a, a clear misuse of taking it. And, and go ahead now. You want to say that this is just another example of? An example of something that requires further thought. I didn't come here with a platform to declare my solutions. But how malleable is is text? When you're in an interpretive tradition, which we certainly are, we're not fundamentalists in the sense that some Christian denominations are literalists about text. We, We can't be. There's too much in the Torah that obviously is not literal. And we don't have ever approached text that's from Jews without Torah Shabal Peh. Now, there are parts of Torah Shabal Peh that are very interpretive. Once you get into interpretation, how do you look other people in the eye and say, well, your interpretation is totally invalid? I know there it is, and I can feel that way, and that I know it's not part of the Messiah, but are there tools available for us to say, you can't do that? If there were a copyright on the Torah, we'd be able to sue you for infringement of copyright. What you're doing is total perversion of Torah. Yet we have lots of stuff, lahavdil, in our, in our tradition, where we take a pasuk in the Torah and we turn it into something very different, or, you know, Hasidish or Jewish in particular. Yeah, well, I think by Hasidus, Rav Yitzchok, there's almost like a wink and a nod that this is a means to, like, for example, the most famous one that Heschel always quoted, Right? From Ema, right? So in other words, Heschel wanted to say, nobody thinks that's the real shot, but I can use the familiar to bring home a point in a way that a preachy lecture won't. If I can wrap a pithy interpretation that brings a smile to your face and say, oh, this is what's a Ema, aha. That's the way you're supposed to start Kriyashma. You're supposed to start Kriyashma with Eima. That sticks with you. And I think the Chassidim knew that. And the Rebbes in their Shalashidus Torah knew it. And anyone who reads that recognizes that this is a means, another means of strengthening Avedis Hashem by using those Nigla sources in an inventive way. But to definitively say, this is what it means, and this is the drash for today, the Chassidim are, are immune to that because they realize it. I, I think the problem is, is people like the ones that are listening uh, to these so-called rabbis are saying, oh, you know, this is, obviously this is what the rabbis meant. And maybe this strange little medrash of a boy turning into a girl is the medrash for our time. And it's meant to explain for us, you know, the period that we're living in. I think that's the part it has to be stamped out. I think that's a very beautiful way of putting things. And the Chassam Sofer in his drashas says something even more pithy than that, but yours was far, far more attractive. 
the Chassam Sofa said that, that Rush often is the Or HaMakif of a Pasuk with a Maimur Chazal. I think in the, that term, Or HaMakif, which the Supreme Court then took a few years ago, 49 years ago, to be precise, and called it the Penumbra. So the Chassam Sofa adumbrated their contribution by... Uh, well, you know, Rabbi Zevin quotes something, I believe it was from another Darshan, Menachem Zaks, who was one of the great Darshan uh, of the mid 20th century. He was Rav Pesach Frank's son-in-law, and uh, he has the, the Sefer Menachem Tzion. So Reb Zevin, in his Haskama to the Menachem Tzion, says a beautiful Einfall, and I might have shared it with you before, that Odom Arishon wanted to know what was going to happen past his lifetime. So here dor dor vidorshov. So simply, you would you learn that he watched the longest movie of all time, right? You know, he lived to be nine hundred and thirty years old. So he took about twenty five years or whatever it was, and he binge watched like the history, and he was able to get oh, that's what the world's going to be like. So Reb Zevin suggested Adam had no time for that. He had other things to do, but he gave him a sampling of drush from every generation. And every generation's drush was a a microscope into what that generation was about. And that would be a lot of fun. Oh, here's this vart. Oh, this vart indicates we're into what we're into. We're into psychology. Oh, we're into uh, communism is is rising. Oh, Zionism is a threat. So he was able through drush, which was an enjoyable way to learn, Odin was able to see our history. In other words, drush really reflects what are the issues of the day? And, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that we can tell, oh boy, if people are going to be looking at this type of drush that the forward represents. So that's really, I think, quite dangerous. But it is drush. Right. But we, we are sweeping something under the carpet here. And that is that your assertion that everybody in the audience, this understood at this point of using familiar material, uh, using plays on words and puns to extract a little bit more of a voda from people. But today, not everybody understands that. When you bring up children with the, the little medrash says, uh, which is fine, as long as when they get a little older, you switch them to the real medrash says without the same approach as the little medrash says, and you never get beyond the little medrash says, and you, you get to, an, to a stage in life when you're a critical adult and you're still left with the approaches of children to text, then it gets a little problematic. And that led within the Torah, within the Jewish community, I'm not sure how much of this in the Torah community, or some of it is there too, of a tremendous pushback against a drush and an inordinate focus on pshuto shomikra which has kosher and decidedly non-kosher forms. And that's something that we have to, we have to take seriously as well. So there are consequences to this. There's also, uh, I'm sure you've seen it many times, the Hagdama of Rav Kook, the Eina Yoh, one of my favorite pieces of Rav Kook. So right at the beginning where he talks about the difference between Biurim and Perushim. And he says that Biurim come from the word Be'er, like a spring that keeps on producing more fresh water. And that he says this is true by the nature of Torah, by the nature of Torah. 
that there will be things in different generations that are legitimate outgrowths of Torah, not just plays on words, not just clever literary manipulation, but Torah by its nature is a be'er that constantly produces fresh ideas. Once you admit to something like that, and I embrace it fully, I have to stop and ask myself, what are the limits? And how do I tell somebody that it just doesn't pass the smell test? That's highly subjective. Maybe I have to live with it. I mean, I, I can live with it if I have to. I think I have an answer. I agree with you 100%. There are definitely, my Murray Chazal, that we needed new scientific discoveries to be able to understand and interpret. There's other Maimar Chazal that we needed certain psychological sensitivities to be able to say. And this door does need sometimes to say it when a previous door didn't even think that way, didn't have that psychological mindset, or didn't even know about that scientific truth to be able to say that's what Chazal are telling us. I agree with this. You know, again, I, I don't necessarily go as far as Gerald Schroeder and others in terms of taking these midrashim and interpreting that way. But I believe 100% Rev. Cook says, I believe in every fiber of my being. In fact, Rebbe, it's like that's, I think, one of the reasons why we can say we have a schus to be alive when we are alive, because we can do things in Torah that our kadmonim weren't able to do because they didn't live in our tkufa. We did not only stand on their shoulders, but we also stand by the openness of what we see around us. But now, what's the litmus test? Part of it is what I just said we can still draw a line. Part of it is not like a a scholarly article where we just dispense with the old, but we actually show the kavim from the drush of the past or the parshanas of the past. We we don't pare it away, but we actually see, we actually are aware. Even in Psach HaLocha, if you take a look at the beautifully structured Pisgah HaLocha that Avram Shmerler helped the Kloisenberger Rebbe write in the Divrei Yatsev, which is an incredible sefer you'll see the chronological beauty of the way a halachic shayla can develop. And even though certain mitziusin have changed, and the maskona that we could say now might even be different, radically different, but in the way we got there, we showed fealty to what had been. We took the strands of the past that we had learned, and we indicated with tremendous respect without being dismissive. So I think that there is a way that Darshanim, Parshanim today, can come up with brilliant new things like Rav Cook did, and at the same time, goofa by their explication of how they got there, and by their retaining key elements of what had been, whether it's in a footnote or whatever, then you can tell that, hmm, this sounds like progress, and the Rabbeinu Shalom is saying, he's happy, because that's Really, that means that we, we aren't just sitting back and saying, oh, just let me open up the safer and, and, and say over a vart. I'm actually rolling up my sleeves and engaging. But I think when, when we wipe the slate clean, when we assume that what has been from the time of the Chazal till now was a bunch of medieval obscurantists who basically were living in a, uh, a white a male, toxic, misogynistic society where we wipe it, then we know that we are bowing at this altar of today. Because 
Rav Yitzchok, the same way Rav Belsky, when he defended the copepods issue, if you remember, part of what he said was, we cannot issue Piskei Alocha that look at the Dor Hayashon and say, Nebuch, they were a bunch of Oivri Aveira, they didn't know, they were Anusim, they were just drinking in all those. He said, you can't say that. And I, I, whether Rav David is right, Rav Belsky is right, something strikes me what Rav Belsky was saying. Part of what makes your new Pshatim possible is the reverence and the COVID that you have, even though you can delineate how it's different, because you're showing Bikiyas in them, you recognize them, you see how important they are. I think you're saying more than reverence. I think you're talking about a kind of continuity. Yes, exactly. Change you're pointing to is not disjoint, but you can show the Kesher to the past. And I think that's quite right, and that is a good witness test. I will just point out, with, uh, as, we ha- as we have to end, a final plug to my all-time hero of all times, which is the morale, that I think that this was a good part of why he selected one of the key stylistic elements that he did, which is to never say anything on his own. He insisted on in treating any question by giving an answer within the context of my Mare Chazal. He would broach a question, give a topic to a book, but then he would assemble Chazal. He wouldn't use them as launching pads to say whatever he wanted, which other people have done at times, but try to show that his thoughts were firmly married to the words of Chazal. And this too was a part of their Kavana, which he's now uncovering. By doing that, he was showing not only his great fealty to Chazal, but emphasizing the continuity rather than the discontinuity of any new things that he was teaching his door. You know, that's interesting. I always thought, and I'm just really taken back by what you said, because as someone who studied the morale lot when they was young, to me, I always felt that the morale was bad bad with Chazal. In other words, when I would find my friends looking at the Marsha on a mimer. And I would say, okay, my eyebrows are large. You haven't gotten there yet. In other words, it's only in Maral that you're really going to learn Chazal. Yeah, the Marsha is going to be fine. There's going to be something else, maybe another Chap that you're going to find in the Teres Chaim or someone else. Also a great thing. To me, the Maral really represents, especially Divri Agoda. You can't learn Agadatu without Maral, the way I feel. Now, you're sort of saying that the morale is really more involved in creating a philosophical or hashkafa system that he entrenches completely in Maimare Chazal. I sort of feel that, you know, I, again, I hear what you're saying, but it, it sort of shakes me up a little bit because to me, and I was mentioned before how you have to have COVID. To me, anyone who tries to, and again, Rav Cook, of course, you can talk about because I don't know if in the Ainaya he, he ever refers to Maral or not. It seems like most of it is is very original on his own. Mm, heavily, heavily based on Maral. Maral, you think so? The Ainaya is really a Maralian work. It could be what we're saying is the same. One of the things that Rav Kook and Rav Tzodik and the Benishchai, who I see as the three greatest Mufarshe of Agadita in our time after the Maral. I think the chilukim that they have is in a lot of those details of the Agada. In other words, a lot of the literary little points of what that literary fine point is about. I think that's where you see chilukai deus with them. But 
the basic approach that what's being said, like the Rambam himself says, the Divrei Agoda represents Soydas Atayra, right? The Divrei Agoda represents Soydas. Get me wrong. I agree with you entirely. I wasn't suggesting that the morale used Chazal as a uh, platform, a skeleton in which to embed his ideas and say, well, this will make it more palatable because I'm on familiar turf. Chas v'shalom, Moral believed that what he was saying was the amkus of what Chazal meant, every single syllable of it. What I meant was that in doing that, in never writing, even though he was one of the only mechabrim we have who was interested in writing topically, by not choosing to do what so many did before and just write topically, but bringing the things out from Chazal, he made it much easier for people to be able to see that this is not one brilliant man's innovation, even if it would be Torah innovation, kosher Torah innovation, but Itaka was shot in Chazal. By using that modality of speaking through Chazal, he made it a lot easier because of what you said before. The smell test is, is this familiar? Does this sound like it is part of the Misora of Kal Yisrael that is continuous through the Doros, despite all of the differences? It's not agenda-driven, and it's not drush. And I think that's really the difference. Look, you, we've seen rabbis who want to talk about the scandal in the community, and will use some medrash in order to discuss it. I think the problem is with Rudy Malcolm and all the things that he's quoted there that we're talking about here is is a bastardization, really, of of Chazal. And it's terrible, really, that real good-thinking conservative Jews, whoever's reading the foreword, aren't in the comments section saying, you know, what are you bringing this in for? You have a right to say whatever you want about how the mindset of ancient rabbis in Israel was misogynistic and anti-gay and et cetera. And applaud whatever you want, but don't touch our baby. Don't touch our thing and, and try to foist this upon us. You know, we talk about fact-checking, and it's unfortunate that we, we live in a, in a period where we even have to take the time to have to like, put those things down. Rabbi Yitzchak, I don't know if we made the bridge properly enough, but again, I, I think it's always great discussing stuff that we're reading and your stuff in Cross Currents and wherever it is. It's always a pleasure. We'll catch you again, Mir Hashem, hopefully uh, before Yom Tovim. Been a pleasure. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.